What a desire of my heart this morning is as we open the Word of God that as we've just expressed in song that we see the Lord. And that's our need to have Christ set before us afresh and anew this morning. So turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, our text will begin in verse number 14. I'll make no pretense about it that trying to find a unifying theme through these verses at first glance was a bit difficult. It was one of those texts I look at and I thought, I need to do something besides preach through books. Do something I can pick a text I like and go with it. But this compels us to... Consider those texts which in many cases we probably wouldn't choose to preach. And it seems, again, in first, at first reading to be somewhat disconnected. That there seems to be something of a, of a hodgepodge of, of thoughts here in these few verses that we've been looking at. But I, I hope that I can successfully, but not only successfully, but also accurately tie these verses together in our thoughts as we consider our text this morning. For those of you who have been with us, last time we considered the parable here in the first part of 16, chapter 16, the unrighteous steward. And there the audience, the immediate audience at least, is identified to, as the disciples of Jesus. In chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus was saying to his disciples, and again, the broader circle than the twelve, they were likely the larger group of those who were following after Jesus in those days. But also in that you had the mix of those who were still opposed to Christ, hearing and listening to the things that Jesus is saying. And Jesus' Jesus's final words, concluding words, in the application of the parable that he cited there in the first part of verse of, of chapter 16 are given to us in verse 13 when he says this, No servant can serve two masters. And then he comes at the very last of that verse, you cannot serve God and wealth, or mammon is the is the word that's used in the King James Version. Well, Luke takes verse 13 where Jesus speaks of None can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And Luke takes that and ties in the next section where verse 14, it says, There now the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were there. The Pharisees have heard what we have recorded in 16 verses 1 and following. And Luke's identity of the Pharisees is this. Who were lovers of money. Now if you follow what it seems to be Luke's assessment here. When he says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. If you tie that back into the words that Jesus states in verse 13. That you cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. Or else be devoted to one and despise the other. And the alternatives there that Jesus gives are God or wealth. And so Luke says these Pharisees are lovers of money. So that according to what Jesus says in verse 13. Luke is saying this. They love money. They are devoted to money. That is the master which they serve, their wealth or their, their material resources. Therefore, it's appropriate to conclude in Luke's thinking, or I think he intends to convey here, that these Pharisees, hence, despise God. They hate God. Now, that seems a pretty harsh Expression, a pretty harsh thing to think. But by virtue of the fact that, G, that Luke describes these men as lovers of money or lovers of wealth, tied into verse 13, you cannot help but see at least the implication there. According to Luke's thinking here, they do not love God. They hate God. They are devoted to another God. That is their wealth. And that is their material 
possessions. And that's even the, the tie in that Jesus makes in verse 13, that they serve and they love and they are devoted to only one master. And it is either God or it is something else. And the matter he addressed here was the matter of material resources and wealth. Let's begin reading here in verse 14. And again, reading 14 through 18. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. It's not unusual to see our children, and sometimes even adults, involved in games of pretending. You know, we can have little girls. They may sometimes, our little girls will be pretending that they're having a tea. And they've got their little platters and their little cups. And sometimes there's water, but sometimes there's nothing. But they're pretending and having their little tea. And then, of course, many of our boys, not necessarily, but many boys inclined to be to be athletes and think about sports and those type things. And so it's not unusual to see a young boy or a young teenager out in his yard with a football or out in his yard playing basketball. And you know how it goes. It's something like this. He's got the ball. He's dribbling down the court. There's three seconds left. He shoots and he missed, but he was fouled. Games of pretend. Now, we certainly recognize that, but it's another matter when the level of pretense deals with things pertaining to God. When we begin to pretend about devotion to God, we begin to pretend about loving God. And in Jesus' day, not so much unlike our own day, certainly not as much as we would like to think, that there were those who were pretenders in abundance. Pretenders, pretending to love God, pretending to be devoted to God. And we can look quickly at the Pharisees and, and point our fingers and say, ah, there they are. They're the pretenders. Those Pharisees, you know, with all their strictness, with all their discipline, all their religious activity that they're involved in. They were those that we would say are they're grounded in the matters not just of religion. They are grounded in matters of the true religion. After all, they are grounded in the, in the religion that is revealed to us in the Old Testament Scriptures. So this is not just any religion. This is not just any belief system. This is what we would say, even as, the, as believers, this is about true religion, the true and the living God. As He has revealed Himself throughout redempt, the redemptive history and recorded in the Old Testament. And they may well have been grounded in matters of true religion, but in true matters of religion. In true matters of religion, they were guilty of pretense. Pretending to love God. Pretending to be devoted to God. And the basis for that statement is this, the requirement... For true religion is a change of heart. And they had experienced no such change. So because pretense is a reality that we have to acknowledge, I want us to take the time this morning to, to consider three danger signs. Three danger signs of a pretended 
religion. Three danger signs of a pretended love for or devotion to God. The first thing we want to consider is that pretense is content with the praise of men. A pretended religion, a pretended love for God, a pretended devotion to God is content with the praise of men. The Pharisees were those who had become masters of outward obedience. They knew the religious forms. They knew what would impress men and they gave themselves to those things. But Jesus issues the warnings to the scripture in Matthew chapter 6, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he he issues the warning there in the context of, of practicing your righteousness, of doing righteous deeds, doing those things which, in fact, are good. Doing things like charity, almsgiving, doing things like praying and fasting in order to be honored or to be seen, to be noticed by men. Jesus warns that those who do these things, they practice their charity, they practice their their prayer, they practice their fasting in order to be seen or honored by men. He says to them, they have their reward in full. In other words, if your goal is to have the praise of men, to have men think well of you, to have men notice you, to have men honor you, Jesus says you can live for that and that's all you can hope to gain is the praise of men. They have their reward in full. Jesus warns in the woes he pronounces in Matthew chapter 23 there against the Pharisees and against the scribes, the lawyers of his day. He warns them about being those who clean the outside of the cup, who clean the outside of the dish, but inside, he says, you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. But you've got the praise of men. And in Matthew 23, 27 and 28, in that same theme where he speaks the woes against the Pharisees and the scribes, he says this, that you are like whitewashed tombs. The tombs that they would come and they would put this whitewash so that they might be visible, but also that it might even improve their appearance. And he says on the outside, you appear beautiful, but inside, inside these whitewashed tombs, they're full of dead men's bones. And the application Jesus makes to them is outwardly, Outwardly, you appear to be righteous to men. Men would look at you and they think, what a righteous individual. What a righteous man. What a man who serves, who loves, who is devoted to God. But Jesus goes on to say, outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy and lawlessness, guilty of violating God's law. Then in Luke chapter 11, verse 43, we've considered this back some months ago as we looked at that text. He speaks of those who love the chief seats in the synagogues. They love the respectful greetings in the marketplace. And then in Luke chapter 20, verse 46 There Jesus, in that point, adds to it those who love the places of honor at banquets. Love these things. Love these things that would cause men to speak well of them, to think well of them. And Jesus warns that you have your reward in full. You get what you're longing for. You get what you are living for. And yes, you may be highly esteemed before God. But according to what he says here in verse 15 of our text, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable. It is detestable in the sight of God. Let me ask you, are you living? Are you living for the honor, for the praise and for the respect of men? Or are you living your life before the face of God? How are you living? Because Jesus says, if you're going to live for men, if you're going to live for the mere appearance of men, so that men might think well of you and men might esteem you highly, that it is detestable. To God. 
So you have the result here in Jesus' day. You have these religious men seeking man's approval and living in oblivion to God. He's just oblivious. They're oblivious to God. So consumed with the opinions of men. So you have the danger here of men who are schooled, as certainly the Pharisees of this day, men who are schooled in the true religion, the religion of the true God as revealed from the Old Testament Scriptures. And they have fallen into the same trap, even as is revealed in the Old Testament of their forefathers. Where Isaiah 29, 13, where there God himself says, These people, they draw near me with their words and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. Their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And that is not love for nor devotion to God. That is pretense. When there is no heart, when it's simply empty words, honoring God with their words and with lip service, but their hearts are far removed. What does God, what does God want from me anyway? He wants your heart. He wants your heart when you come in worship. He wants your heart when you're alone in your closet with God. He wants your heart in a time of family worship. He wants you, not just the outward form, not just the appearance of things. He wants every part of your being. So there's always the danger of those who are raised in such an environment. And in our case, those who are trained in a Christian environment, a Christian home, a Christian school, Christian Sunday school. Whatever the case may be, to learn the forms, to know the words, understand to some degree it can articulate the theology of Christianity. It ought to be a fear of our hearts as parents that, that our children can be raised in a Christian home and in Christian circles and they learn to do these things so well, but there's no evidence of grace in their heart. And that can, that's the danger. There's never a, a sense of the weight of their own sin upon them. There's never been a point of, of coming in repentance for their sin before God. Never been an embracing and a believing in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him alone as the provision and deliverance from the hell that they deserve. Does it not frighten us, parents? Yeah, I think as a pastor and I think of the theology I, some of it I know. <laughs> but I think as I communicate that to my children and the things that they can articulate to me just as we've just been instilling and as poorly as I do that. But what a fearful thing that my children can rise up and understand all these things. They can understand the theology. They can know what's expected of them. They can apply all the externals that I will require of them in the home that God will require them in the Scriptures. But there's been no change of heart, no change of life. They become content to live for the praise of men. When I was in the ninth grade, I believe that was the point. If I had to pinpoint a time, it was the point that I believed I was converted. I was in a citywide crusade. I've shared this with some of you, the citywide crusade. I was a counselor, a ninth grade counselor. So if young people came, one came forward, I gave invitation to the end. If they came forward, then I would be there to deal with young people, junior high age, to share Christ. And this Things started on Sunday night, Friday night of that citywide crusade. The evangelist that was came this was citywide thing. The evangelist who spoke preached on those who believe the Christians and are, and are not. And I knew it. I didn't care that there were hundreds of people there. I knew, I knew that I was not saved. I'd never been converted. Had a little counselor's badge, took it off, shoved it in my pocket, and went down. And there were so many counselors, evidently, that got converted that night, there weren't enough of them to go around. So nobody counseled with me. 
And I had men in the church because I had made a profession of faith in the traditional Southern Baptist format. You know, you, as a nine-year-old boy, you make a profession of faith or you go forward. And I didn't have a clue what, what it meant, but had done it, was baptized, and, and was li- living a good life. But a lot of that was my, simply my personality. And I had men in the church tell me after I was, I believe, truly converted. So if there was ever anyone they thought... Any young man in the church that thought was a believer that it was Randy McReynolds. That's how good I was. I wonder if there's any young people here today that you're better than that. You've got people fooled. You've got the externals down. You, you know what to say. You can answer the theological questions. You can define repentance. Faith. I mean, after all, you've been catechized. But has there ever been a work of grace in your heart? Are you content with the praise of men? What does God think of your Christianity? What does God think of your Christianity? Is it a Christianity that brings pleasure to the heart of God because it's a clear work of grace? God has transformed you and He has finds pleasure in His people. And He finds pleasure in His work and His saving, His redemptive work in your hearts. Or is it A pretense that's detestable to God. That which is highly esteemed among men is your Christianity. That which is merely esteemed among men but fails the test of being acceptable before God. How about it, young people? Is it real? How about it, adults? Is it real? Are you living Cormdale before the face of God? Are you living for the praise of men and content with that? One day, one day, that will fail. And the praise of men will pass. And you will stand before God. Are you content with the praise of men? Second thing. Second danger of pretense is that pretense has a contempt, has a contempt for the person of Christ. How much does one's view of Jesus have to do with a relationship with God? Especially in a plural society that we live in we've got all types of religion here in Bristol Tri-Cities how much does one's view of Jesus if you're in one of these other religions have to do with a relationship with God well, the Pharisees' attitude toward Jesus didn't conceal. Verse 14, Jesus speaks, they scoff. They've run head to head with Jesus before. They've disagreed with what he's done. He's been healing people on Sabbath. Shouldn't do that, according to them. He's challenged their teaching in places. So they don't like him. But what does such an attitude toward Christ reveal? An attitude of contempt, an attitude of scoffing, of despising Jesus. What does that reveal in the heart of an individual? And of the Pharisees, we could very quickly say that in in spite of their claims to the contrary, and in spite of whatever objections they might might raise against this statement, it would reveal that they do not truly love God. 
And that statement is true whether you are a Pharisee or a Hindu or a Muslim or a church-going Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever the case may be. If you do not love Jesus Christ, you do not love God. That's the simple statement of Scripture. Jesus says, in John chapter 8, verse 42, He says, If God were your Father, you would love Me. Jesus says, and we read this a moment ago, If you believed Moses, you would believe Me. For He, Moses, wrote about Me. So Jesus addresses this issue with the Pharisees by giving them a very brief lesson in redemptive history. There in the beginning in verse 16, and He says, The law and the prophets, they were proclaimed until John. He's saying there, Jesus is very simply acknowledging the role of the Old Testament Scriptures in redemptive history. That it's a record of what God has been doing. It's a record of a revelation of God's will for His people. So Jesus is very simply saying, the law and the prophets, they were proclaimed unto John. In other words, they were God's message, His soul message to humanity. And in particular, to His people. Up to a certain point. And that is a point where the Pharisees would agree. They would say, yes, we recognize the Old Testament Scriptures as being the inspired Word of God, God's revelation of His working through His people, for His people, throughout history. They would agree with that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus continues. Jesus goes on with the idea that the Old Testament Scriptures were not the end of redemptive history. That there's more, and in fact that there's a, a transition point, and Jesus ties it right into the ministry of John. He says there in verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, John the Baptist. The law and the prophets, that was the, the complete revelation of God until John. And since that time, since John has come on the scene, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. So what's he saying here? Jesus is saying that there's this, there's this turning point. There's a turning point. There is further revelation of God that is taking place, and for them, right under your nose. And it began with the coming and the ministry of John, which was a fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. The prophecy in the Old Testament was that there would be one who would be a forerunner to the Messiah when He comes. There would be the one who would be this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And the New Testament very clearly applies those verses from the Old Testament, particularly from the book of Isaiah. To John the Baptist. And we considered even way back there in Luke. That the coming of John the Baptist. The coming of John the Baptist was prophetically speaking. Just as important as Jesus coming. Prophetically speaking. It was just as important that John come as Jesus come. Because the scriptures spoke of both. I'm not speaking of redemption. Not redemptively. Jesus worked far excelled, far more important than John's. But as far as the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures, it was just as necessary, just as important that John come as that Jesus come. Because the scriptures said this would be the case. So Jesus ties in this turning point of this new point of revelation as it coming through John the Baptist and himself. Because if John the Baptist is the forerunner, Jesus is the one who is to come. He is, in fact, the Messiah. So Jesus is very simply saying this. The Old Testament types, the Old Testament prophecies, they are fulfilled 
in Him, in Jesus Christ. And we read the verse back in John chapter 5, 39, just a few moments ago. Jesus says, these scriptures that you hope in, they testify of me. The Old Testament scriptures speak of Christ. See Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He opens up the Old Testament scriptures as they speak, as he speaks about himself. So that in contrast, when Jesus is making the claim that the Old Testament scriptures, which the Pharisees would have so much hope in, that they are fulfilled in him, the Pharisees refuse to acknowledge Jesus as such. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus failed to fit their mold of expectation and Largely a national deliverer. Deliver us from the rule of Rome. That's what the Messiah will do. He is going to restore Israel to all of its glory. There's going to be one who ascends the throne. Who is a descendant of David. He is going to come. And Israel is going to be restored. And Jesus didn't fit the bill. Jesus came for something much more important than a national deliverance and for establishing a national Israel. He came to deliver men from their sins. But in the minds of the Pharisees, such a deliverer just simply was not needed. I mean, after all, we have the truth. After all, we are God's people. After all, we know God's law and we, and they're thinking, we obey it. The idea of what we talk about and what we think about conversion, the need of conversion in the, in the mind and the, the thinking of a Pharisee wasn't, wasn't even on the map. We don't need this type of a Savior. We don't need someone who delivers from Sin, we need someone who sets us free from all. We've been delivered from sin as the people of God. We don't need a Savior like Jesus. So that the conclusion we come to from this is that a true grasp and a true love for the Old Testament Scriptures will necessarily lead to love for Christ. And that if the Pharisees had truly understood and truly loved the Word of God as revealed to them, they would have embraced Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of these things which the Scripture spoke of. The second conclusion is this. A true love for God A true love for God will necessarily be evidenced by a love for Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate love for God and love for Christ. Because apart from the work of redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, the heart of man is always continually opposed to. To God. So unless a person has come to Christ. Unless they've experienced the transforming power. Of the grace of God in their heart. They cannot help but be opposed to God. The scripture says. You're enemies of God. Say wait a minute. I'm not an enemy of God. I kind of like him. I wouldn't call myself an enemy. You don't have to. God already did. He's stated the terms of your relationship. The enemies of God. And that the only remedy for the standing of being an enemy of God is to become a friend of God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Because only salvation through Christ brings transformation of heart. So what is your attitude toward Christ? What is your attitude toward Christ? Both the person of Christ and His work, which cannot be separated. 
You reject the person of Jesus Christ. As revealed in the scriptures, you reject God. Some might say, well, I have no contempt for Christ. I'm just not comfortable with the idea of saying that He's the only way to God. I wouldn't say I have a contempt. Well, if you hold to that position, then you oppose the clear teachings of Christ, His testimony. You regard His redemptive work, His incarnation, His suffering, His death, His resurrection as irrelevant and unnecessary. And if you don't call that contempt, what do you want to call it? What you've done, Jesus, is a waste of time. It's nice, but not necessary. So long as we refuse to come in repentance from sin and embracing Christ, we hold Christ in contempt. I do not need such a Savior. I don't need that kind of a Savior. Finally, we see that pretense practices a contortion of the precepts of God. The Pharisees, they were convinced of the rightness of God's law. They weren't trying to dismiss it. They would say, yes, it's God's word. It's God's law. Rather, they became masters of ingenious ways to to contort it, to twist it. Where the law of God became something that was manageable, something that was doable, something that they had some degree of comfort with. So they added to the law of God, they added their traditions, oral traditions, written traditions. And they made obedience to the the law of God and to the traditions of men a way to stay in favor with God. See, their assumption was, people of God, we're in favor with God. We just got to stay there. That was their assumption. So Jesus, first of all, He reinforces the eternal nature of God's law. Verse 17, although there is this new day of revelation, which comes with John and and Him fulfilling the Old Testament, He makes very clear He's not coming to undermine the Old Testament. Verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. God's law will not change. God's will for the people of God today is the same as it was for the people of God then. It's just moral law. So Jesus makes very clear that the law of God is eternal in nature, but at the same time, He challenges the interpretation of And the application that the Pharisees are making of God's law. Now you come to verse 18. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries one is divorced from a husband commits adultery. The first question that ought to come to mind is, what in the world is this doing here? came to my mind. I was preaching on this day. I looked at it and said, what in the world is this verse doing here? You've got a few options. Number one option is that Jesus is just putting a few scattered ideas together. As he articulates, he's just kind of moving from one thing to another. There really is no tie-in. The other alternative is that Luke, in compiling some of the teachings of Jesus, that he's doing that. There's not really a tie-in here, but I've got to get this verse in here somewhere. So let's stick it right here. The other option is that there is a tie-in. That Jesus... What he says here in verse 18 is relevant to what he said back in 16 and 17. That's the position that I hold to. That that ties here. And then what Jesus is doing here as he stated the eternal nature of the Old Testament law there in verse 17. He's making very clear that that's eternal. And then he goes on to say, making application here in verse 18. Here is an example. 
Here's an example for you to consider. And he challenges the thinking of the Pharisees of his day. In fact, he attacks it here. This example is, let's talk about your view and what the Scriptures teach about, the Old Testament Scriptures teach about divorce. He lived in a day where it was a virtually a no-fault divorce. Divorce made easy. All you have to do, if you are a subscriber to the teachings of the Old Testament Scriptures, is if you will issue a certificate of divorce, according to the law of Deuteronomy chapter 24, then issue that certificate, you're free. Because you've acted according to the law of God. But Jesus counters that approach. Jesus says that the provision for that certificate of divorce was made because of the hardness of man's heart, according to Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. And that the provision of a certificate of divorce was offered as a safeguard to the victim so that if one is divorced for no reason, they're not hung out to dry. They've got a certificate of divorce. I was divorced for no legitimate reason. Here's the reason, but it was nothing legitimate. So it was a safeguard because of the hardness of the heart of the side of the people. He knew they'd be divorced. If you're going to do it, you issue a certificate of divorce. But it was a provision made for the hardness of, of man's heart. So Jesus charged here in verse 18. <clears throat> Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Let me tell you what he's doing. He is running in the face of the teaching of the Pharisees. Because they've made provision. You can, you can be divorced. And I cannot help but think, as these men were making such laws, not for the convenience of the ordinary men, of general public at large, but they were making these these exceptions and then they were twisting and contorting the laws of God for their own sake, for their own benefit. And I dare say that there in the midst of those Pharisees, that there were some, some of those Pharisees who were unlawfully divorced. And married to someone else. And Jesus is just very simply saying this. You are an adulterer. That's not a very nice thing to say to the Pharisee. That is quite offensive. You are an adulterer and you are causing other people to become adulterers. So in all of your pretense, all of your claim to be living by the, the more demands of God, you're in violation of of one that we can take right back to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus is saying, you're guilty. And that wasn't the only place they would do that. We have examples from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where He would begin just a series of His teachings there with the phrase something along the lines of, you have heard it said, or you have heard that the ancients taught, or those type things. And there He talks about Hatred and murder. There he talks about vows. Of which vows are valid and which vows are not valid. Which ones are binding. Which, not are, which ones are not binding. He speaks about revenge. He speaks about loving your neighbor and hating your enemies. See, all these things that the scribes and the Pharisees had taken the law of God. And they had, had taken it and they had twisted it. They had contorted it. And they had made it something that was manageable for them. Something that they could do. And it suited their own pleasure. So it was no longer the law of God, it was the law of man. And Jesus says, I'm taking you right back to the law of God. The law which you place your hope and your confidence in. Placing your hope and confidence in the writings of Moses. I'm saying you're guilty. You have violated my law. Needless to say... Jesus hit a nerve. All that these Pharisees were doing, claiming God's approval, 
but clearly against the commands of God. Let me ask you, can you say with the psalmist, the Old Testament psalmist, in the day of what limited revelation that he has, can you say with the Old Testament psalmist, I love your law, O God. I love it. Or can you say with the Apostle Paul, as we considered in Sunday school this morning, the children, that the law of God, that it is holy and it is righteous and it is good. Because if you can say those things, you can say, I love the law of God. You can say the law of God is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. That is only possible for someone who has experienced the grace of God. Because otherwise you experience nothing but the condemning voice of the law. The law condemns. The law exposes. The law reveals our guilt. It reveals our failure. It reveals our need of Christ. How can someone say, I love your law, O God, except that he's been first set free from the condemning voice of the law? And that's only possible. It is only possible if the demands of that law have been, have been fulfilled through someone else and then that has been applied to you. That is the gospel. That the demands of the God's law have been fulfilled by the perfect righteousness, the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ and His perfections, His merits, His righteousness applied to us. Then we can say, I love your law, O God. Then you can say the law is holy and it's righteous and it's good because it reveals to me what I need to know. To let the law do all of its work. In the initial work of that law, it's painful. But to let the law do all of its work, do all of its exposing, do all of its condemning, and hearing that voice of guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I've violated God's law, but having been able to silence that voice because of God's work of grace, God's declaring us righteous. God's saying to you, you are righteous. And it's not just word games. It is the work of God in applying the merits of His Son to us. We live as believers with a holy dissatisfaction with our conduct. A holy dissatisfaction satisfaction and understanding of of our sin and of our failures we're not whitewashed that we know so the law can say to us you're guilty and i can say you're right i am but conversely we also have a genuine peace with god because of that perfect righteousness his obedience applied to my record and my guilt my sin, my violation of God's law placed upon Him and Him bearing the wrath of God because of that. Do you love the law of God? You can only truly say that if you've experienced that work of the law of driving you to Christ. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. If you think that you can in any measure keep the law of God, obey the law of God, make yourself acceptable before God by an act of obedience, you're fooling yourself. So, do you take the law of God at its face value? Or do you try to twist it? Try to turn it? Oh, it can't be this. I couldn't possibly do that. It must mean this. And that's the commandments of God. Certainly the the error of, of much theology is that God would never issue command to us that I could not obey. And the scriptural message is that every command that God issues to you is impossible for you to obey apart from His grace. God commands you to repent. God commands you to embrace Christ. It's a command command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a command. And you cannot do it. You cannot do it.
in your own resources, in your own strength. You need the power, the grace of God. So do you love God? Are you merely pretending? You know the answers to the questions. You know the right things today. And if someone were to ask you, what must I do to be saved? You could tell them. But have you ever been converted? Has there ever been a work of God's grace transforming your heart? Are you pretending? Let's pray. Well, these are frightening words to all of our hearts today. That our hearts are wicked and deceptive. That we would rather tell ourselves anything today except that we need a Savior who has to endure what Jesus endured. But Lord, I pray that you would set Christ before men and women in this place. Oh, to see Him as your provision for sin. To see Him as bearing the sins of His people upon Himself, enduring the wrath of God. And having His perfections, His obedience, His merits applied to us. Oh, Lord, you, can all, you alone can do that today. And we pray for our children, for our young people. Oh, God, spare them from mere externals. Spare them from pretense. That there be the reality of conversion. Lord, that they not be content with the things that they have done, but they be satisfied only when they are convinced that you have done something. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.